All right, welcome to Making the Argument. Before we get started, I have a very important announcement. We have a brand new deal with GoodRanchers.com. That's right. If you go into Good Ranchers and you use promo code Nick and you sign up for one of their subscriptions, you're not only going to get $15 off, but do you remember the old deal where you got two pounds of ground beef with each order? Well, we just upped the game. That's right. You can choose top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon now. Every single order you get on that subscription is going to come with free. Top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, or bacon. You get to choose which one if you use promo code Nick. And again, $15 off on top of that. That's a savings of $480 in meat by signing up for one of those subscriptions. Not to mention the fact that if you are looking for a gift for someone that is impossible to shop for, you can go on to GoodRanchers.com and get one of their brand new gift boxes. Now, this is a limited time only offer. It's part of their overall Black Friday special. So go on to GoodRanchers.com to get more details. Sign up for promo code Nick in order to get that deal and let's get on with the show. 2022 comes in with a bang in Virginia with a huge snowstorm, the snowstorm that comes through. We've got people locked in their cars in I-95. Some of them having to spend the night there. We've also had a number of other things that have taken place in the news, everything from Biden's COVID predictions with respect to Omicron, and of course, Marjorie Taylor Greene getting kicked off of Twitter. We're going to be discussing all these issues on this episode of Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Okay, we're actually going to try something uh, a little bit new. We're going to go through some of the, the biggest news items that have taken place over the last week, right? We've picked three here, and we're going to go through these, and we're going to talk about the left-wing perspective, the right-wing perspective, and we're going to talk about unreasonable versus reasonable with respect to how do we approach these things, how do we potentially solve these problems? Because again, presumably, we all want to solve problems that we've, we've both identified but we sometimes disagree on how to do so. So we're going to go ahead and talk about that. We're going to discuss the conservative perspective and the left-wing perspective. For those of you on the left that are saying, Nick, how could you possibly understand the left-wing perspective? You've dedicated a sizable portion of your life to arguing against it. Again, go ahead and come on. Listen, grade me, tell me whether or not you think I've done an accurate job or an effective job of actually conveying your perspective at the same time that I'm trying to convey the conservative or the liberty perspective as well, all right? But let's start off with what went on in I-95. So for those of you who don't live in Virginia, and for those of you in New England who generally laugh whenever a couple you know, flakes of snow hit the south and everyone goes nuts, we actually had a pretty big snowstorm. And if you live in Virginia, this is one of those things where you, you are, you're used to hearing a, a weather report come in and say, oh my gosh, we're going to get seven to eight inches of snow, and then you maybe get an inch, and you're like, yeah, that, that kind of figures. Well, they weren't lying this time. We actually got a lot of snow, and it, it shut things down. I mean, I'm still without power. I had to drive out so I could make sure that I could, you know, get groceries for the family, make sure that, you know, we're, we're keeping up with our obligation in order to, you know, do our podcast, but then I got to get right back home, because uh, again, we're still waiting for our power to come on. Um, but one of the biggest stories that come out of this that's really hit national news and for good reason is that we had a number of people that got caught on I-95, which is the main interstate uh, leading from Virginia into Washington, D.C. It goes uh, you know, all the way south um, through Virginia. We've had a lot of people getting caught up there up to like 80 miles, 80 plus miles south of Washington, D.C., trying to do their commute. In fact, Senator Tim Kaine talked about how he left for his you know, one to two hour commute um, and 19 hours later, he's still in his car. So we, we've had people trapped in their cars overnight in freezing temperatures because they weren't able to get off of I-95. And this is a huge 
problem. And the reason why I'm bringing this up is because my, my intention here is not to be partisan at all. It's just to say that this is something that I don't care where you are on the political spectrum. You can look at this and say, this is a problem. Like we all agree this is a problem. That's not always the case. Now, as best I understand, having served on the Transportation Committee and the General Assembly, the left looks at this problem and they see a couple of issues. One of the biggest issues that they see is, yeah, look at all these people that are trapped in their cars on I-95. This is why we need more mass transit, right? This is why we need more rail. This is why we need more, you know, other mechanisms of transportation that will allow people to get to work and not be, you know, potentially stuck in their cars on I-95. Um, they'll also come up with reasons why, obviously, why more funding might be particularly needed in order to widen the roads or, in this case, to provide for more emergency uh, equipment to be able to come in and help people when they're needs so we don't have something like this happen, right? That is the, again, as best I understand, the left-wing perspective of this. They see this problem. They see to some degree that there's been a failure to be able to respond in a crisis situation. Nobody wants these people to be trapped in their cars. And so the solution is either more funding or moving away from you know, this sort of traffic congestion that we see on a regular basis and coming up with different ways to incentivize you know, movement toward, again, more methods of mass transportation. The right looks at this perspective, we say, yes, we also agree that there was a, a huge failure here. You know, under no circumstances should be people be trapped in their cars on a major interstate, you know, right outside of the nation's capital. And so there's a couple different ways that we tend to look at it. One, we look at, okay, how were, how were resources allocated um, in such a way to contribute to this problem, right? So like our, our initial standpoint is not to merely look at, obviously there was weather conditions, or to look at what else can the government do. We also look at what did the government do poorly. And some of the things that we look at for that is like, well, when you take funding, that is supposed to be around safety and traffic congestion, and then you move it into other areas like, you know, whether it be uh, you know, mass transit or high-speed rail or whatever it is, we look at it then and say, well, okay, well, those were funds that could have been allocated in a different way that would have made more sense given the situation that we have on the ground and given our understanding with respect to people's preferences when they travel, right? Most people do not prefer to travel mass transportation for a variety of reasons, not the least of which is you're dependent on somebody else's schedule a lot more than you are if you're driving your own vehicle. Okay, and so the, the conservative perspective on something like this might be to say, yes, more funds might be needed, more emergency equipment might be needed, but how do we allocate existing funds or how do we put more power into the hands of a, of a local area to be able to make some of these decisions, to be able to raise taxes for it in order to prevent something like this from happening? How do you coordinate with the federal government? So this is one area where there, there probably will be some crossover, but watch. There will be a lot of fighting on how that money should be allocated. And typically speaking, the left-wing response is going to be, see, this is the problem with all this traffic congestion. That's why we need more mass transit opportunities. That's why we need other mechanisms to be able to address this. Whereas the conservative response will generally be, no, what you needed was more people that have the equipment available to be able to clear these roads and to be able to get people out of danger when something like this struck. And so that's why the, the funding should be allocated that way. And that's largely going to be um, you, you, the discussion, the debate that you see. I'm going to add another component into this. And this has to do with, this is one of the problems that I see coming from the liberty perspective on depending too much of government and, or depending too much on government. Because ultimately we're going to be able to look at this and we're going to say, okay, the government was responsible for building these roads, they're responsible for maintaining these roads, they're responsible for clearing these roads, they're responsible for safety on the roads. 
So why did they fail? Now, some people could say, well, Virginia's not used to this volume of snow, and so this is, this is kind of a one-off. It's not something that they, they regularly deal with. If this had been in New England, where the government up there is used to dealing with this, this probably wouldn't have been the problem. And there's some truth to that. But this isn't the first time that Virginia has had a lot of snow. Right? This is one of the issues that from a liberty and from a conservative spec, uh, perspective, we come in and we say, when you have something that essentially most people acknowledge is a responsibility of the government, in this case, maintaining an, an interstate, right, which has shared federal and state responsibilities. This is the sort of thing we look at as, this, this is a primary responsibility of government, right? So why is government doing all of these other things that are not part of the primary responsibility of government when it's clearly not doing its job on something that pretty much the vast majority of the population agrees is its job. And, and this goes back into one of the primary concerns that a lot of people have on, on the right when we look at government power, government authority, and government use of resources, is that there's this temptation to constantly spend these pots of money on things that have nothing to do with core functions of government, and therefore government gets distracted and it doesn't even end up doing the things it's supposed to do very well. And so this is one of the reasons why when people are trying to say government should also be involved in X, Y, or Z, the conservative response is to come in and say, wait a second, let's go look at the thing that most of us didn't, didn't question was a government responsibility. Now, obviously, there's some people on the libertarian side that say they shouldn't even do the roads. Okay, fine. But most people say that, yes, we, we acknowledge some sort of government responsibility for these roads, some sort of responsibility for their maintenance some sort of responsibility for them to be able to react in a crisis situation, and they failed. Is part of the reason why they failed is because they're distracted either through their attention or through the allocation of resources into other areas which are not legitimate functions of government. So I, I think a reasonable take on this in order to address an issue that both the left and the right are concerned of, and that is how do we make sure that nobody ever gets stuck in their car on I-95, is that we need to say that if we are, if we are accepting that this is a core function of government, then when we look at the allocation of resources, those allocation of resources should be based off of how do we help people based off of the decisions that they've made within a, a, a government lane, as opposed to constantly trying to take those resources and shift them to areas that, that there's a lot of controversy on whether it's a legitimate function of government in the first place, or trying to push them into what politicians prefer which might be mass transit, as opposed to what individuals prefer with respect to how they get where they need to go. And so I, I'm hoping that both sides will be able to come together in this next legislative session, look at this and say, okay, you know, clearly there is a response that is needed to this because for better or for worse, the government has assumed responsibility for the interstate, right, for, this, for these roads, Right? And they need to have a mechanism to ensure that nobody is put in this kind of danger again because of a snowstorm. And again, it's not that the snowstorm you know, wasn't serious, and obviously that's beyond our control, but we need to focus on, okay, how do we plan for a situation like this? How do we learn from it? How do we allocate resources appropriately so we can quickly respond to it in the future and it doesn't happen again? Right? That's going to need to be the debate that, that actually takes place. All right, let's move on to our next one. Um, Biden's COVID guidance. So B Biden was coming out and he was saying for a long time now that obviously this was a pandemic of the unvaccinated at this point. And they were, you had a lot of people within CNN, within MSNBC, you had the Biden administration specifically coming out going, if you're vaccinated, then you're either not going to get it or you're not going to spread it. And then it was, and then it was modified, right? Because the, it, it was obvious that that wasn't true. And it was, well, it will make your symptoms 
less severe and your chance of hospitalization of death um, you know, you know, far less than it otherwise would have been, right? This has been the, the generalized argument. But then Omicron comes in, and, or excuse me, Omicron comes in, and Omicron has, it is much less lethal. Um, the, the symptoms are nowhere near as severe as you saw in Delta or the original uh, version of, of COVID-19. But it's, it's highly transmissible. And this actually follows a fairly logical pattern of the way the viruses work. So what has been the left-wing perspective with respect to COVID? Well, a lot of times it's been based off of this idea that, look, um, while your individual liberty or freedom may be important, we're talking about a pandemic where you going out and just simply breathing the same air or shopping in the same store can have an adverse effect on other people, especially with a highly uh, contagious virus. And so therefore, you should be required to take certain precautions. Right? And, I, and I think initially most people were okay with that on some level. Now, obviously, they thought it was disingenuous that you could you know, shut down Home Depot or shut down their church, but you could keep open you know, a Safeway. But be that as it may, the left-wing perspective was generally surrounded around this idea that, yes, there, there are, should be some requirements as a result of a highly contagious virus. And then there was a, a great deal of push on the idea of get vaccinated because vaccines is one of the primary ways that you help develop overall herd immunity. The conservative perspective um, has in some ways been caricatured. And to some degree, it's our own fault, but in, in large part, it's, it's mainstream media. Because the conservative perspective was, and, and again, generally speaking, was, okay, cool, we don't have a problem with vaccines. We don't have a problem with people taking reasonable precautions. But, but there is a limit, right? There is a cost-benefit analysis that we're closely watching, and we're saying that while COVID is, is very bad, that there are other things where your responses to COVID can actually yield results just as bad, if not worse, if you don't do it carefully. And part of that concern got caricatured as being just straight anti-vax. Now, obviously, there are a lot of conservatives that are anti-vax. There's other conservatives that are anti-COVID-19 vaccination. There are other conservatives that are not necessarily any anti-any sort of vaccination, but they were concerned about the process in which this one was developed, or they, they wanted to take a wait-and-see approach with respect to, one, how bad COVID-19 was going to be for them personally, right? Or how effective the vaccine was going to be. And that seems to me to be a, a somewhat reasonable position, right? It's the position I've taken. So obviously it was reasonable to me. But as time went on and you saw different states implementing different policies, here's the problem, and this is where we get into the reasonable versus unreasonable, right? So I, I can look at the left-wing perspective and I can say, okay, based off of especially the early days of COVID, I can understand why they took the position that they did. I might not have agreed with all their prescriptions. I didn't agree with shutting down the economy. I didn't agree with you know, shutting down all the schools. I didn't, I didn't agree with that, but I understood why that, that could have been conceived as a reasonable position when we didn't know what exactly COVID-19 was going to do or how it was going to affect or who all it was going to affect. On the conservative side, um, you know, again, that was the position I took. I, I found that to be the more reasonable position. However, again, I'm not saying that, that people on the left that took a more cautious approach were being unreasonable initially, even though I didn't necessarily agree or think it was the best course of action. Now we're moving into a realm of reasonable versus unreasonable. Because a lot of this is, is somewhat predictable. So for, for instance, when COVID was striking really hard down in Florida and it wasn't striking as hard in, in California and New York, 
Governor DeSantis brought up the point that, well, yeah, weather conditions actually have, uh, have some say in this with respect to people's behavior because one of the most easily transmissible places to be was if you're, if you're inside in a building with other people, you're more likely to, to um, uh, transmit COVID than if you're outside. Well, when it's really hot, you know, in Florida, people tend to go inside, air conditioning, et cetera, and you saw different booths. Right, and then all of a sudden that kind of changes when you get into the winter months and now people are outside more in Florida, they're inside more in, in um, uh, other climates. And when DeSantis pointed out, the media all came out and basically talked about what an idiot he was. And then all of a sudden when it flipped, they came out and said, well, yeah, it's obvious. We know this is how you know, behavior reacts. And so this is, this is what happens when, when people react. Um, you also saw the differences as COVID went on you know, the, the reasonable position up front might have been, hey, look, we don't know how this is going to affect or who it's going to affect, so we all need to take precautions. Well, as time went on, we saw very clearly that the people that were having the, the most adverse effects of COVID were people that were elderly, people that had comorbidities, um, people that had, you know, again, ex some sort of extenuating circumstance. Now, that doesn't mean that there were outliers. There currently were, or, or there, there certainly were, but that is who we saw as, as, as drastically being affected by COVID, those people that fit in within those categories. And so the reasonable position you would think going on is, oh, okay, well, since this is affecting people in nursing homes and this is affecting the elderly and this is affecting people with you know, pre-existing conditions or respiratory issues, that's where we should focus our efforts with respect to making sure that the, of, of resource allocation, that the people that are the most vulnerable are the ones that should take more precautions on a personal level and for which more resources should be allocated when it comes to addressing those particular concerns and needs. But we, we shouldn't continue to send people away from hospitals for other conditions because we're afraid of COVID. Or we shouldn't continue to shut down all of the schools when it's now become apparent that schools are not a, a high-level transmission. Or we, sh we shouldn't continue with a lot of you know, travel restrictions when that doesn't seem to be, like airplanes, for instance, don't seem to be a, a main vector of transmission. But we weren't able to do all of that, right? Because all of a sudden it was this unreasonable concern that, no, 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 we have to act as if we know exactly about COVID as, as what we did when this first started. When the numbers and the data didn't bear that out. And then all of a sudden it was, well, if you, if you have these concerns about treatments or if you have concerns about how COVID originated in the first place, right? Was this just something that naturally happened because it transferred from bats over to people? Or did this have to do with gain-of-function research that the United States government now, you know, apparently participated in the Wuhan lab? Is this something that was a result of something that was going on in the Wuhan lab? Right? Those, those questions were beyond the pale and you weren't allowed to ask them. Right? And so all of a sudden, the more, the more people that you were shutting down on social media the more reasonable people said, well, wait a second, that seems like a reasonable claim or that seems at least like a, a reasonable question. Why are they being shut down for it? Especially when five months later, six months later, all of a sudden the things that were getting you kicked off social media are, are now coming back and say, oh yeah, there actually was an element of truth of this or no, that actually is a line of inquiry that, that's worth pursuing. That's where it becomes unreasonable. And the more unreasonable you get in your approach, especially when you start punishing people as a result, we're going to take away your job. We're not going to let your kid go to school. We're going to kick you off of social media. The more unreasonable you get, the more people who, who might have been willing to listen to your argument or might have been willing to you know, get a vaccine are going to come back and say, wait a second, you know, if you have to go to this level of effort to try to either scare or threaten me into doing something when I, I'm, I'm not at a high risk, and potentially maybe my lifestyle doesn't put other people in high risk. Maybe I work from home, whatever it is. It doesn't matter that this overall demonization and this otherizing within society has caused people to basically push back who otherwise would not have necessarily had a problem 
with some of these acts or some of these responses. And what we're seeing with Omicron right now is, is a continuation of this to where for a lot of us, this seems like a real unreasonable fear at this point, not simply, not because we didn't take COVID seriously or not because we're anti-vaccine or, or not because we're, we're anti having, you know, multiple people ask questions and, and pursue different lines of inquiry with respect to the best way to approach it. But because as we look at the data over the last, you know, year and a half now, we're starting to get more skeptical that it seems like the solution is always the same, regardless of the sort of results it produces. So you tell everyone, we'll get vaccinated and that's all you're going to need. Well, now you need to get vaccinated and you need this booster. And now you need another booster. And we said, okay, well, look, this is getting a little bit scary. Where now we're worried you're going to get into a situation where you have to have a vax card in order to do things. Oh, that's ridiculous. Nobody's suggesting that. And then they suggest it, right? Or, or, it's, or we have this Delta variant and that's going to be you know, so much worse because it's going to run through everyone again. And now we have Omicron. And then with Omicron, it was, you have a lot of people that will get Omicron and be so asymptomatic that they're not, they might not even realize that they had anything resembling COVID. And we were all supposed to be like horribly afraid of this. Whereas a lot of us are saying, well, wait a second, this is actually one of the ways that you, you achieve herd immunity, right? Vaccines can be a part of that. But, but so is people catching it and developing natural antibodies for it. And, and if the symptoms have become far less problematic for the population in general, well, then this is, this is one of the ways that herd immunity is achieved. And isn't that a reasonable position? And we get told that, well, you just want people to get sick. No, I don't want people to get sick. We, we just understand that over the history of looking at viruses, this is one of the ways that it progresses. And so when you tell people that see themselves as otherwise fairly reasonable, who, who are looking at the data and coming to a different conclusion, then not only are you wrong, but you're an idiot or you're anti-vax or you're anti-science or we're going to kick you off of social media. Well, then all of a sudden, you're, starting, you're going to get more of this tribal approach to an issue, and it's going to make it very, very difficult to come up with something resembling scientific or even policy consensus because one side has already made up their mind that this is the approach, and it's almost like they're so married to it that the moment you ask a question, they have to immediately otherize you and put you into this different category and say you're part of the problem. And now you're not trying to convince me to do something. You're trying to intimidate me into doing something. And, and I'm sorry, but free people do not see that as a reasonable approach to something. All right, let's move on to our, our third issue that we're, we're going we're to chalk up today. And then we'll kind of do a wrap up here. And that was uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene getting kicked off Twitter. Now, you're probably thinking of these, these first two things I've talked about. I go, Nick, these were kind of like big, heavy-duty you know, issues that, that the left and the right have different perspectives on. You know, wh why are we now talking about an, another person getting kicked off of Twitter? Well, this actually kind of feeds into the larger narrative that we were just talking about. And that has to do with, again, not just the left perspective and the right perspective, but reasonable versus unreasonable. So the left perspective on, on Marjorie Taylor Greene getting kicked off of Twitter is, of course she should have been, right? That's their perspective. It's the idea that this was a person that um, said things that were, you know, potentially racist, said things that uh, potentially incited violence. And so therefore, she shouldn't have been on Twitter in the first place, and Twitter should not have afforded her a platform in order to say things that were either untrue or could potentially cause other people to become harmed or hurt. And so they use that as their justification. So from, the, from their own side, from the left-wing perspective, this makes sense that she would be kicked off of Twitter, uh, not because they disagree with her on tax policy, but because they genuinely believe she was saying things that were either going to, again, lead, lead to people getting harmed um, either through false information or through the direct incitement of violence. So this was a no-brainer for them. And then 
that's how they looked at it. But then from their perspective, they also looked at it as, and they want to look at conservatives and they say, okay, the other side of this argument is Twitter is a private company. Hey, you conservatives, you're the one always telling us that private companies should be able to do what they want. Great. Twitter's a private company. They did what they want. They kicked her off. Quit your complaining. Right? So that's kind of the two-pronged argument here. The first prong was they didn't see Marjorie Taylor Greene as simply engaging in freedom of speech. They saw her as actually doing things that were you know, directly uh, either morally reprehensible or were the kind of intellectual equivalent of shouting fire in a crowded theater, which are, you know, again, legally not permitted to do. And then the second argument to conservatives was, hey, you guys are the ones saying that if somebody doesn't want to bake a cake, they don't have to. Well, if Twitter doesn't want to give MTG a voice on Twitter, they don't have to. There you go. Right? What's the conservative perspective? The conservative perspective is to come back and say, well, wait a second. Um, we're not mad at Twitter because they want to run their business you know, the, the way they want within the rules. We're mad because we think Twitter is lying about what they are. And this is an important distinction. Because if, if Twitter were just a platform, which is, which is the legal protection they seek out, right? Twitter likes to tell everybody we're just a platform. Like, uh, like AT&T, right? Nobody, you know, nobody blames AT&T if you say something over the phone that is not nice, right? Or even incites violence. But Twitter's essentially said, we want the legal protections of a platform, but then we want to kind of subjectively operate like a publisher when it suits us. That is what conservatives are really upset about. Right? Conservatives are furious about the idea of you're saying you're a platform, but you're operating like a publisher. Pick one. Because if you're going to be a publisher, then we get to sue you when you arbitrarily you know, you, you know, use your platform to slander us or to harass us or to target us. Right? And, and not only that, but conservatives are all looking at this going, okay, you kicked MTG off because you think she incites violence or spreads false information. But the Taliban, the Taliban's Twitter is still allowed to be up. So spare us, right? You are not being intellectually honest in the execution of your own community guidelines. You're not being intellectually honest in the execution of your own standards. You are using this as a platform to shut down speech you don't like. Now, again, if you want to say you're a private company, great. And if you're going to operate like a publisher, then you should, you should be susceptible to the same potential lawsuits that any other publisher would be susceptible to. But again, they don't want to play that game. They want, they want to use the legal protections when it suits them to be a platform, but then they want to operate like a publisher, and lo and behold, it, it's only certain people they tend to target um, when, it, when it comes to, comment to comments of a political nature. So that's the conservative perspective. Now, I will say this, reasonable and unreasonable. Okay, is it reasonable to say that if you are directly inciting violence, that a platform could potentially take down your Twitter account? I think most people would say if you are getting up there and you are encouraging people to go wipe out, murder, kill, uh, loot, riot, that, that there, is, there, there could be some level in there where you're saying, okay, you are now encouraging illegal behavior and we don't have an obligation to allow you to stand up when you're continuing to push um, not just illegal behavior. We're not talking about telling someone to go speed or to you know, smoke pot in a state where it's not legal. We're talking about like open advocacy of violence against innocent people. Right? I think most of us would agree that if, if a, an account wanted to say, hey, this goes beyond the pale, we're, we're going to silence that account. I think most of us would be willing to look at it and say, okay, yeah, as long as that's applied evenly across the board, that, that makes sense. Um, unreasonable. Uh, and I'm going to start with the conservative here because I've seen a lot of conservatives use this argument where they say Twitter is you know, suppressing their freedom of speech. Let me tell you why this is a dumb conservative argument. 
Okay, your freedom of speech does not extend, right, your, the, your protections under the First Amendment or under any amendments within your respective state constitutions does not extend to every relationship that you have within the marketplace, okay? You cannot go up to your boss and say, F you, and if you get fired, you can't go back and say, oh, my boss violated my freedom of speech, right? The freedom of speech protections are protections against government interference with your speech. It's against the government coming in and saying, you're not allowed to say this. Right, or we're going to shut down what you just said because we don't find it politically palatable. It is a restriction on government power. It is not a restriction on every other relationship you might have within society. Okay? So, whether it's your boss or your parent or your college professor, when they tell you you can't do something in their classroom, in their house, or in their business, or when you can't say something, because it interferes with the purpose for what you're there. And it interferes with their teaching. It interferes with maybe the conduct of your, your job within that business. Right? They, they have the ability with, within some parameters right, to say you can't say that here. When they do that, they are not infringing on your freedom of speech. And when we make that argument, again, we look stupid. So don't make the argument from that perspective. The, the good conservative argument here is to once again say what I said earlier. Twitter is lying about what they actually do. Because if they were applying their community guidelines and standards evenly across the board, there'd be a lot of people on the left kicked off that are not being kicked off. There'd be a lot of other people on Twitter that openly and actively call for violence or, or rioting and looting and whatnot that would be kicked off who are not kicked off. And so what this really comes down to is, again, Twitter wants the legal, Twitter and all these other social media platforms, they want the legal protections of being a platform, but then they want to operate as a publisher. And that's the part that we should point out is that that is unfair. It is not reasonable to expect the legal protections of one thing when you're doing something else. That's the argument. All right. So let's go ahead and sum all this up real quick. All right. With, with I-95 and people getting stuck on the stove. Again, anybody that, that is within proximity that can go and help those people, bring them stuff, that, that would be a, a great thing. We never have to wait on somebody else in order to help somebody in need. Okay, but ultimately, there's, there's going to be a debate on what to do next. And the left and the right both have their perspectives. But I would say where this gets unreasonable is where we start saying that, oh, this is a result of global warming, and now we have to completely revamp our entire energy policy because of what happened on I-95. When a far more reasonable approach would be to say, look, because the government has built this road, is responsible for maintaining this road, and is presumably responsible for responding in a crisis, we need to learn from what we did and make sure that the proper resources are allocated so that in the future, when we have a, a weather condition like this, all right, something like this never happens again. All right, that, that's the government's proper role. And again, working with local communities, working with local entities and private sector uh, entities, they have the ability to be able to respond and respond quickly. All right, that, that's a, a reasonable approach that I hope both sides are going to be able to do. All right, when it comes to Biden's uh, COVID response and we go into Omicron, again, left-wing perspective, I, I think a lot of us, even if we disagreed, we understood why there was so much concern initially with respect to COVID and, and why so many, you know, I, I would argue in many cases, draconian measures were offered up and suggested. All right, but where this gets unreasonable is when we get to the point where now we've, we've done this for a while, all right? COVID's been around. We're, we're on our, what, our third variant now, our second variant, right? And, and it's getting, it's doing what we expect viruses to do. It's becoming more contagious, but the side effects are becoming less adverse, right? And 
I'm sorry, but if, if you really want to follow the science here, herd immunity is generally gained through a combination of natural immunity and through vaccination and other precautions. So that you get to a point where enough people have the antibodies, whether it was through natural immunity or the vaccination, to where this no longer becomes the same concern at the same time that the virus has mutated to such a degree to where it, it's not like it's going away completely, but it becomes something akin to the flu where, yeah, it stinks, and yeah, there might be yearly shots that people get for it, but it's not something where we're shutting down everything or kicking kids out of school if, if they haven't got the latest round of Pfizer booster, right? So again, the reasonable response to this is to say, we know, we, we've got enough data now to where we know how this virus operates. We, we know that the natural progression of most viruses you know, throughout history of recording this, and that we have to return to some degree of normalcy within life and make adjustments appropriately based off of those that are the most vulnerable, but we don't shut down the entire economy. We don't threaten tens of millions of workers that they're gonna lose their job if they don't get a vaccine, right? At that point, I'm sorry, we've moved beyond the reasonable into the unreasonable. And finally, with you know, MTG getting kicked off of Twitter, Dumb conservative argument is to say Twitter violated her freedom of speech. Freedom of speech protections are a restriction on government power. All right, you, you, you can't, we can't just conjure them up anytime somebody has a consequence as a result of saying something we don't like. All right, that is a dumb argument and we shouldn't make it. The better argument to make is to say that Twitter is not applying their standards across the board. They're trying to claim legal protections for one thing. They're behaving as something else. There's a lot of other platforms that do the same thing. That's where there is some potential for the government to come in and say, you have to be properly categorized before the law so that people have some sort of ability of legal recourse, right? If you are operating outside of the legal guidelines from which you have identified. By the same token, we do not want the government coming up with a whole new host of regulations on how these social media companies are supposed to perform, right? I'm, I am still a genuine conservative, and I still believe that businesses, provided that they're not violating some sort of an inherent liberty, are, are able to conduct their businesses with their property the way they want. And I'm not willing to give that up simply because I'm pissed at what certain companies are doing, right? The general principle has to be something that we stand behind, but again, the best argument right here is social media companies need to pick what they're going to be, and if they're going to operate outside of it, then there's legal recourse. And if they don't operate outside of it, they can get the protections that are naturally afforded, those sorts of platforms. Anyways, hope this has been helpful. Thank you once again for joining us on Making the Argument. Session is going to start next week. So next week, we're going into legislative session. We're going to be doing a ton of live updates from Richmond as session goes forward. I know I got a lot of bills. We got an incoming Republican majority in the House, a new speaker, Todd Gilbert. Very excited about that. New majority leader, um, Terry Kilgore. I, I think we're going to have a great session. I really do. I'm looking forward to it. And as always, we will be keeping you updated both of the podcast. Also, if you haven't gone, go to our Facebook page, like us and follow us there because we'll be doing Facebook Lives. And if you want to know what's going on as it's going on, we're going to have the opportunity to inform you right there. You can join into the conversation. Once again, I'm Nick Freitas with Making the Argument, where we make the arguments to defend a free society. Thank you for joining us.
Once again, thank you very much for listening. If you want to support the show, again, one of the best ways you can do it is by heading over to GoodRanchers.com with promo code Nick. You're going to get $15 off. You sign up for one of those subscriptions, and you're going to get up to $480 of free meat with that subscription. You get to pick top sirloin, salmon, chicken breast, bacon. It is all up to you. Plus, if you're looking for gifts to get for the people that are impossible to shop for, GoodRanchers.com also has gift boxes. You need to act quick. This is part of their overall Black Friday special. So head on over to GoodRanchers.com, use promo code Nick, and once again, thank you for listening.